you know, Rick Monday would sit three rows behind me in a luxury suite. And I never Jeez. looked at him the entire game. Wow. And when Charlie Steiner was doing the games, he was at his house. And Rick was at the stadium watching the same video, hopefully at the same time. And there was, there was video lag. Episode 58, I bring in another sports broadcaster, Tim Neverett who calls the Dodger radio, mostly radio games, some TV, but mostly radio. Anytime I have the opportunity to talk to a broadcaster, I'm in, especially a sports broadcaster. Uh, As most of you guys know, my passion with the microphone, I love the mic, I love sports, and I love broadcasting. So Tim Neverett was nice enough to come on, and, and we talked for about 35 minutes on several different fronts. These guys have... Uh, it's, first off, broadcasting in general is not easy in any sport. And baseball is one of the most difficult ones because you have a lot of empty air, dead air, void space. And think about guys like Vince Scully who called it by himself. He didn't have a color commentator uh, next to him to fill up that air. So now these guys on road games, they're at the stadium in an empty stadium and they're calling games on a monitor. So you're essentially at home calling a game. Now, you're not seeing guys where they are. A guy hits a double, runners at first base. Is he coming home? Is he at third base? It's not easy. The element is very difficult. And so we get into that. We talk about that a little bit. But uh, he's got a book coming out called COVID Curveball. And this came out, of course, during the 2020 season when the Dodgers won the World Series and kind of broke down the entire season and how it went. I'm looking forward to that. That's coming out August 31st. On Amazon, you can pre-order now. COVID curveball. We also talked about where uh, baseball is headed today. I'm not really fond of the game of baseball right now. I, I, you know, I don't miss baseball in terms of missing games. I watch every single game. I try to attend as many as I can. I, I'm, I'm a baseball nut. But the way it's going and the where and where it's headed, I'm not a big fan of. So we'll get into that as well. Episode 58, Dodgers play-by-play announcer Tim Neverett. Here we go. I was thinking the other day, like, you know, writing books, I think, is a whole different animal. I mean, where do you start? Uh, It's interesting because I wondered the same thing. And uh, I've got two very close friends from college that are both uh, New York Times bestselling authors. One writes in the sports genre, one writes in the environmental genre. And uh, I consulted both of them and they just said, Look, it's not as hard as you think. Just open up Microsoft Word and start typing. And they said, they'll have people at the end that'll fix all the punctuation and grammar and everything else. And I, they said, so if you feel like you're, you know, you're not writing like your high school English teacher taught you to, don't worry about it. And uh, so, that I, so that's what I did. I just sat down and each day I started writing, came up with this. So you had some time, obviously, due to the pandemic when you started right i'm assuming you would have never wrote this book if it weren't for the pandemic right yes uh if it wasn't for the pandemic we'd have been going through a regular baseball season i'd have been concentrating fully on that i would have had you know my regular number of assignments which was which is uh, you know a lot of them uh i would have been bouncing back and forth between radio and tv and i would have been really really busy but due to the pandemic my schedule was limited you know, I probably did maybe 15% of the schedule 
uh, on radio and TV. And then I did radio pregame, postgame segments every day. But, you know, I, I would go to every game at home. I went to every single game and I was at the ballpark every day, even when they were on the road. And you know, I would go there for the radio pregame and uh, tape it there. And then I would uh, have time while I watched the games. And after the games were over, I would write. I wrote every day in real time. So it was, uh, you know, more like in a diary format. You know, I didn't start it by writing Dear Diary every day or anything, but I just, I, I would just start by, you know, making observations about certain things that were different, you know, protocol-wise, testing-wise, what Major League Baseball's numbers were in a particular week and how they were going up or going down and uh, what the uh, things we were hearing at the time were. Every single game, uh, regular season and in postseason, and I, I think even the preseason games, too, are all uh, chronicled uh, one way or another. And so every game is touched on. And I think it's easier to do that in a 60-game schedule than in a 162-game schedule without writing volumes. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, you're right, though. I mean, if, if, if there was no pandemic, there was there will probably, I'm, I'm sure there wouldn't have been a book. A lot more enjoyable book to write, too, because you only lost 17 games out of 60, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know it's you know it's easier to write uh, on a happy night. Yeah. We had a lot of happy nights, so yeah, it was an incredible season like that. You know, I give the players a ton of credit because when they got between the lines, they played as professionally as possible. It was a major league baseball game in every sense of the word. Once they stepped over the line, but outside the lines, you got flat cardboard fans. You've got mostly empty seats. You've got piped-in crowd noise. It was just like the twilight zone of baseball. And it was a weird environment to be in. But when you're broadcasting, I thought especially on radio, when you're broadcasting, you have your headphones on, you do hear the crowd noise, and you're focused on what's happening from home plate outward, you would almost fool yourself into believing that it was uh, normal times. But it wasn't. And, you know, during commercial breaks, you take your headset off, you look around and you're like, wow, this is just weird and so different. And people don't realize broadcasters, you guys feed off the energy of the crowd, too, not just the players. We do. We, we do. We absolutely do. And at Dodger Stadium, uh, it's easy to do because the crowds are so great at Dodger Stadium, especially uh, and even when you're on the road, you, you really feel it. You get the feel for the game. And you have a sense of what's happening and your senses are more sharp when you're at the game than when you're not. Uh, when you call a game remotely, you just don't have a sense of where the baseball is half the time because you can't see it. And when a guy hits a home run, the way that it's cut by the director and we're at the mercy of the home team's television director, whatever they decide to show us which is the same that everybody gets at home. But when the batter swings and makes contact, the ball immediately goes out of the frame. We don't see it again until it lands in the seats. And we don't know how far up unless the, the high home camera pans out so far that we can see the ball, but we can't see the trajectory of the ball. You can't call a home run with any conviction whatsoever. You just don't know. You're talking about the away games that you're doing at Dodger Stadium, right? You're looking at a monitor. Correct, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so, uh, you know, and it's it's just a, a totally different animal we're dealing with 
And even though we'll have full stadiums around Major League Baseball very soon, until all of the broadcasters are calling games on site, home and road, we still won't be back to uh, we still won't be back to normal. Tim, talking about the calls, I can't even imagine a guy, you know, a hard hit to left field, guys at second base, he's trying to round third. Is he headed home? Is he stopping at third? How do you tell the people on radio what he's doing? <laughs> like, right? That that part, that dynamic is crazy. Yeah, we had a situation the other day in Atlanta where bases were loaded. Will Smith was the runner at first. Chris Taylor hits a double. And I can't see Will Smith. I don't know where he is. <laughs> and the guys in the the guys in the truck didn't know either because they put the score up as seven to one. So when I saw that, I assumed he stopped at third. I checked what we call our all nine look, which is a high overhead look, but the the, the players basically look like specs and, and you can't really tell where they are all the time. So then I looked back at the program monitor and then I saw Will Smith in the dugout and I looked out at the score bug and it changed from seven to one to eight to one. And then I had to, you know, say, and Will Smith came in too. Mm. So, you know, th there are times when we just don't know because we're at the mercy of what the television shows us. If we were there, you would see the whole thing unfolding in front of you. But it, it, it is challenging. I mean, you know, no complaints, no excuses. We don't harp on it. We do occasionally say where we are, but we don't use that as an excuse. I mean, we've been doing this long enough, and I've called enough events off a screen in my career that, you know, it's something that I'm able to do, but it's just not nearly as easy and effective as it would be if, if we were on site. Have they told you guys anything about that? Is there an update as to if you guys are traveling with the team or not in the future or upcoming future? No, uh, no update as of this time. No, no, we don't know uh, anything more today than we knew yesterday. There's a lot of there's, well, there's a lot of logistical things that have to happen, you know. So uh, it's just not like hey, get on the plane. So there's a lot of different things that have to happen uh, for teams to travel their guys. So we're hopeful at some point, in, you know, some point in the future we'll be able to go again. Back to the book. So if we start at page one, where does it start? Does it start at game one? Well, prior to that, it starts with an incredibly in-depth forward by Oral Hershiser. And Oral did a remarkable job. He embraced this project fully and was very enthusiastic about it. And he really takes the reader inside his brain during 1988 when he was on the Hill getting ready to record the last out of the world series, you know, retiring the open A's and, uh, you know, what was going through his mind just beforehand. He, he tells us about a moment where he stepped off the rubber and took it all in and what he was thinking. And then the chaos that afterwards, everything from having to suddenly film a, a, a segment for the Disney commercial while you've just won the world series to, you know, what, what it was like to see his family and, and what it meant and how it changed his life. And then he bridges that to 2020 and relates it to Julio Urias and how he got the last out of the World Series and what he did. And, and then he goes on to talk about the legacy of Clayton Kershaw and uh, a number of other players, uh, including Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger, and Mookie Betts in particular. It, it's a, a really good forward, and I sent it along to our publisher when he did it. And the publisher, the editor of the book was like, this is incredible. Like they, they were astounded by it. So that's how it begins. 
you know, then a, an introduction by me and it tells you my history with the Dodgers. You know, the fact that it starts off, you know, who am I and why am I writing this? And, you know, the fact that I do realize because I bounce back and forth and I've only been in L.A. for three seasons that people here don't know me that well. But, you know, I've been a Dodger since I've been seven years old and people don't know know about that. But that story's in there. And I was with the Dodgers in AAA and I actually played for a semi-pro team named the Dodgers and the Brooklyn Dodgers farm team played in my hometown, a stadium that I played in many, many times and, you know, growing up, you know, so it goes that, but they, the book starts on page one talking about what TMZ is reporting about Justin Turner. The fact that he's returned to Southern California and nobody knows how he got there. And then it's basically, you know, this is how it ended. Now this is how it begins. And it takes us to a, a crisp spring morning in Arizona, spring training, 1.0 1.0 and uh, what happened that day just before the shutdown. Seven-year-old Dodger, were you a New Hampshire little leaguer? I was, yeah. I was a bat boy for two years for the Dodgers. Then I played for them for four years, and we won a championship when I was 11. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and That's and awesome. I was taught from an, I was taught from my coaches taught me you wear your hat a certain way, you wear your uniform a certain way when you're a Dodger. You have to be proud to be a Dodger, and and so that's where I learned it when I was a kid and. Just ironically, I've, I've been associated with the Dodgers in one way or another throughout my whole life. So they weren't, they didn't allow you guys to be around the team and the players in 2020. How much of this book do you have insight on with the guys, or is it more of you kind of outside looking in? No, there's some uh, insight. There's a lot of quotes, actually, because the access that we had was through Zoom. You know, there were occasions where we had private broadcaster calls with uh, Dave Roberts and there's some excerpts from those uh, but there are some things on a daily basis not every single day but I think especially starting with the reconvening of summer camp in July uh, you know the comments will show you how different things were and uh, you know day one Clayton Kershaw says we're going to do what we have to do to win and we're not going to be stupid (laughs) you know so you know there are a lot of quotes from uh, players and, and from Dave Roberts in the book uh, throughout the entire season. And uh, it, it's not just, you know, my story. That's not it. It's just, it's the Dodgers story through, through my eyes uh, because I was there every day in a tier three capacity. And we did not have personal contact with the players. Uh, we did not have personal contact with the coaches. We were not allowed on the field. We were not allowed in the dugout. We were not allowed in the clubhouse. And obviously we weren't allowed to travel. And those places are where we do some of our best work when we're off the air. So, uh, you know, how did we accommodate for that? Uh, how were the broadcasts done uh, remotely? Where were they done? You know, Rick Monday would sit three rows behind me in a luxury suite, and I never Jeez. looked at him the entire game. Wow. And when Charlie Steiner was doing the games, he was at his house, and Rick was at the stadium watching the same video, hopefully at the same time. And there was, there was video lag. Uh, so there were a lot of challenges just to get the games on and to make them sound as normal as possible. And everybody involved in the production of them, you know, I tip my cap to them because we tried as hard as we could to make these games sound and look, uh, like a regular baseball season in the most irregular baseball season ever. You know, baseball is full of stories as a broadcaster. There's, uh, between 25 to 30 seconds between each pitch. And so you have to fill that void or that gap with stories. 
I feel like when you guys aren't around them uh, as you were in the past, you are less uh, amped to have stories about guys or just stories in general. How difficult is that and how challenging is that when you're calling a game and you can't really put stories together? Well, you're right because there are many times when I would go down to the batting cage during batting practice or see a guy in the clubhouse with nobody around and I just say, hey, what, what happened here? How are you doing today? What's going on? Or stuff like that. Um, you know, the one story I did get from, from a player was via text. And it was Joe Kelly, the day that uh, his mural was unveiled in, uh, in Silver Lake on the corner of Sunset and Parkman. Uh, which is where I lived during the 2019 season. So when I found out where it was, I knew exactly where it was. And I went over there to look at it, took a picture. I texted it to Joe. Uh, he was one of the few players that I had his phone number from because he and I were together in Boston. And I said, look what I found today. And he texted me back and he was on the uh, IL at the time. And he said, feeling good. He goes, I'm going over there to look at that tomorrow. Uh, I should be back soon. Shoulders feeling great, you know, something like that. So then the next time I was on the radio, I used that story. But typically you're going to have those stories on a regular basis. So what we had to do last year, I know in my case, uh, I had to go to the memory banks. I had to go to uh, past uh, note uh, notes that I had. Um, I had to go to past notebooks that I had from the 2019 season and, and go through old stories that I had already used and then reuse them. So, I mean, I had a whole notebook on the Giants that I put together in spring training in 2019. And first game against the Giants, I was retelling old stories. So, uh, but, but we had to do what we had to do. Uh, we, we did distribute a list of uh, broadcasters' phone numbers throughout the American League West and National League West. And we would text each other or call each other sometimes, which we still do today uh, in order to get stories because we're still in the same situation. But uh, not being able to be around the players and, and coaches and trainers and staff you know, we're just not able to convey what we normally would have the opportunity to. And that was one of the byproducts negatively of the COVID season that uh, continues into this season. But that's, you know, covered in the book. But there are stories that I'm able to tell in the book that people don't know that went on behind the scenes uh, that have gone on in the past. And I do incorporate some other stories of mine from my baseball past that are relative to the stories in the day at hand, uh, according to whatever day it was in the book. Tim, what are your thoughts on where the game's headed today? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's got to progress. It's got to be progressive. I, I do believe that. I think that it's got to appeal to a younger group of fans. And I think that a lot of the players are doing a good job promoting themselves on social media and getting that younger audience. I think Major League Baseball understands that and they are attempting to grab the younger audience. And I think that baseball is trying what they can to incorporate more offense into the game. Right now, that's kind of backfiring. We see batting averages at a, I guess, an all-time low for the modern era. Uh, we see strikeouts up. One out of every four bats ends in a strikeout. So Major League Baseball recognizes there are issues with that. I mean, you know, where's the hit and run bet? <laughs> I haven't seen that in a while. Although I've seen more safety squeezes uh, this year and last than I have in a while. So that's a good thing to see in the game. Haven't seen the suicide squeeze that often. But I've seen more people trying to bunt with a runner on third, which is interesting. But you just don't see the hit and run all that often. Uh, the stolen base, we hope, comes back uh, a little bit more than we're seeing. Because uh, that's an exciting part to the game. And there are a lot of young, exciting players that I think a young crowd can gravitate to. I mean, if you're a Dodger fan, 
and you're in the age group of say, you know, 12 to 25 and you can't gravitate to guys like Mookie Betts, you know, I mean, players like that, you know, you really got to wonder if you're a fan of baseball at all, because these guys are wonderful players. And I think they're attractive to young players. They're exciting and uh, they make it fun. Yeah. When analytics come out and say that the RBI is the most overrated stat, that's, that's head scratching, man. <laughs> um, I'm with you. Uh, I think that the RBI is not an overrated stat. I think it's one of the, uh, the main food groups of stats. Um, you know, that's like the meat and potatoes of stats. That and runs scored, and I've maintained for years and I always will. Runs scored is the most underrated stat because how do you win games? <laughs> you score runs, and you have to score one more than the other guy to win, right? <laughs> So players that score a ton of runs, I mentioned Mookie Betts, he's been one of those players. Uh, those guys are some of the most exciting and the most valuable that you have because you've got to get on, you got to get over, and you got to get in. And that is the basis of the game is to score one more run than the other guy. So you're either scoring it or you're driving him in. And those are the two main things offensively. Have you talked to any of those guys in the front office? I call them the Geek Squad. You don't have to tell. You don't have to tell them. I, I call them that. But <laughs> do you do you do you ever talk to those guys? The guys are like, you know, the 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 guys are you know running around and 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 they're all about the stats and the numbers. Do you ever like, peek your head and ask them about certain stuff? We haven't had the opportunity to really at this point in time. I haven't requested an opportunity to. Although, you know, I've had occasional conversations with Andrew Friedman, but you know, and some other people in player personnel. But in the analytics department, I think from our standpoint, a lot of them are, for lack of a better term, anonymous. I mean, mm -hmm. you see different people, like in normal times, you'd see different people on the plane and wonder who they are and what they do. <laughs> and, and, they, and, and, and then you'd go in the clubhouse and you'd see different people you haven't seen before. And you're like, oh, they just, they just dropped off a stack of papers a mile high on uh, Dave Roberts' oh desk. God. What is that person? They must be in analytics, you know? Jeez. So they, they, we, we don't know. You know, they, they have an important job to do, and they're not the only team that does this. That's Every right. team does this. That's right. That's you know, right. and, yep. and when, when, I was with, uh, when I was with Pittsburgh, we had a guy there who was the head of analytics, that, and they only had him for a while. Uh, this was back in the, you know, uh, back in the old days, I guess you'd say. <laughs> And we were always invited to go into his office at any time. He told us his door is always open. And occasionally you drop in on him or you bump into him at the ballpark and you say, hey, can I ask you a question about something? Or he might say, hey, you were talking about this on the, on the television the other day. Um, do you want some more information on that? And say, yeah, oh, yeah, great. Because we used to do a, a feature on Sunday television that was sponsored called Sabermetric Sunday. So, like, we would take a stat. Uh, or an analytic like, uh, for example, FIP, like fielding independent pitching. And at the beginning of the telecast, sometime in the first inning, we would introduce the stat with a full-page graphic, and then we would say, we'll follow this through the day for, say, uh, Francisco Liriano, who was pitching. Just a name out of the hat. And so as the third inning would come around, we'd update his FIP, as long as he was still in the game. And then if uh, we get to the sixth inning and he was there. We'd update it again. And it was Sabermetric Sunday brought to you by such and such company. And that's how we would kind of learn it uh, as well. Although I don't believe I've ever used fielding independent pitching in a broadcast sense uh, or even looked at the stat sense. But uh, there are people who do every day. And, you know, to the organizations, analytics are very important. And these people are a lot smarter than me. I know that because, you know, I can barely add, subtract, divide, multiply. 
And these guys are coming up with formulaic equations that are going to relate to the game that night and where players should position themselves. And I will say one thing about analytics. When I see them defensively, I've watched the Dodgers defensively for three years now, and they're in the right place more often than they're not. So something on the defensive side of analytics is working because they've had more outs than base hits up the middle allowed. I mean, and, and base hits in certain holes allowed. Did players hit against the shift occasionally? Yes. But that's just a, the nature of the game. It's going to happen. You're an old school guy, Tim. If if you were playing in the league and you saw four guys on the right side of the infield, you would make sure you hit the ball to the left side. These guys probably need a shrink for about five months to figure that out. <laughs> it's it's mental gymnastics. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and if you're asking if it was me, I'd I'd be dropping a bunt down all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd be I'd be trying to roll one down and hit the third base bag or or, or bunt. That'd be offensive to you, Tim. You'd be offended by that. They're basically telling you that you're a one dimensional hitter. You can't hit it here. Yeah, right. I actually saw in a spring training game a few years ago, Mitch Moreland bunt against the shift for a double for a straight double. Mm. He bunted, he bunted it hard down the line, right past third base, down the left field line and walked to second base. There you go. And I'm like, yeah, why don't we see that? Now when the shift first came in, I remember like Arizona and Milwaukee were the two of the teams. I remember in the national league were doing it a lot. I remember Prince Fielder came up to bat and the pirates tried to do it against him. And I mean, they had everybody overloaded on the right side of the infield. He still would not drop down a bunt. He wouldn't put the ball to the other side. He wouldn't try an inside-out swing. He wouldn't back up in the box to, to you know, create an outside opportunity for him. He wouldn't do anything like – all he wanted to do was pull it over the fence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I started thinking to myself and asking the question, well, you know what? We've got guys in this day and age in baseball who don't care about the shift. And they're going back to what Ted Williams said about it when they first started doing it on him. He said, no shift is going to stop me from hitting it over the wall. And he was right, and that is still true today, but I do think there are ways to win a ball game if teams are going to give you half the field to work with. Yeah, especially with batting average being at 230 now, lowest ever. And I'm sure, you know, pitchers are using some sort of substance, but it's been happening for 100 years. You know, I'm sure guys have been using this forever. So right. it's just, I don't know, man. My, my mindset is different. It's I've got all off season, I've got all spring training to work on going the other way. And... Uh, it's a difficult game. Do, do not get me wrong. It is a very difficult game, but it's just you got to figure out a way to maybe go the other way sometimes, maybe put a bunt down, and, and like you said, walk to first or second base. So let's get back to your journey a little bit. You started when you were really young. I think you were calling minor league games at 19. When did you know this is what you wanted to do? You know, I was uh, in high school, I think, early in high school, and I remember sitting at home with my dad on a Sunday afternoon. And we were having a conversation while watching an NFL game on TV. And, you know, he was just sort of curious saying, you know, hey, what do you think you want to do? You want to be a pilot? You want to be a dentist? What do you, what do you want to do? You want to be a lawyer? And we're watching a football game. And I remember Pat Summerall was calling the game. And I said, you know, I like sports. I said, uh, do you think the guys calling that game we're watching right now get into the games for free? And he said, absolutely. They're actually being paid to be there. And I said, well, then that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's a cool story, man. And I, and I said, that's what I want to do. And I thought, boy, I could get paid to go to sporting events. How cool is that? And then I really started to look into it. Then I started to realize who these voices were calling these games, both you know, locally on the radio and 
because I had always been a fan of the old Celtics announcer, Johnny Most. I thought he was really entertaining. I used to listen to Celtics games a lot as a kid and used to listen to Ken Coleman call uh, call games for the Red Sox. And uh, when I was in high school, Joe Castiglione started calling Red Sox games. And lo and behold, he became my partner later in mm. life for three years. Mm. So, uh, you know, but I started to realize who these guys were, what they did. And then I started calling games in my head saying, could I do this? And by the time I was 18, I did some radio reporting for the local radio station on the state high school baseball tournament that I was actually playing and did like a little 30 to 45 second voicer on a payphone that they could include in a sports report. Uh, And I thought that was kind of neat. And then the next year after my freshman year at Emerson College in Boston, I thought, I was playing semi-pro baseball in the summer. That's what they used to call it. Those, you know, the college wood bat leagues they have now. That uh, now that back then there were semi-pro leagues. You, you might have a guy who's 35 with a full-length beard pitching against you. Um, <laughs> but but the team's name, ironically, was the Dodgers, and they were named after the the Brooklyn Dodgers farm club that played in the same stadium. So I, I'm, again, I'm back playing for the Dodgers for the second time in my life. And that summer, I got an opportunity. Uh, through a friend at that radio station that broadcast the Pittsburgh Pirates double-A games that were in my town that played at the same stadium, right? So I eventually had to make a decision. Where am I going to be in the future? Am I going to get drafted off the semi-pro team or out of my college league? No, but I can do it professionally if I'm a broadcaster. So I got an opportunity to be an intern one of the guys wanted to take a, a weekend off. So the younger of the two announcers said to me, hey, you want to do the middle innings tonight? And I said, yeah. So I did innings three and four. And then the next night I did innings three and four. They realized they could take nights off. And by July 4th, I was doing both ends of a doubleheader by myself. Oh, man. That's awesome. And too. I ended up doing about about 40 games that year. And I said, this is what I want to do. I now have clarity on what exactly it is that I want to do. And now I need to figure out how to get there. And you kind of went up the ranks, right? You started the minor league level and you just kind of kept going up. I did. Um, I actually, when I was still back East, I did some auditions that never aired for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Uh, they let me do some tapes, of the AAA game. And then I sent that when I knew I was actually going to go work out West because the, the, the opportunities out East were shrinking. So I, I knew of an opportunity out West. I could go work in talk radio, sports talk radio. That was just really blossoming. And so I sent that Pawtucket tape to the Las Vegas uh, AAA club. And a couple of years later, they asked me to come in and uh, fill in and do a game. And I got to work that afternoon with Marty Barrett, former second baseman for the Red Sox and Padres, who lives in Vegas. And he was doing color on the game. So I did that game that day, my first AAA game. The next year, I got hired by them, and I did TV and radio for them for parts of 10 seasons after that. And even when I left to go work in Denver, they would still call me and have me fill in on series, and I'd just meet the team on the road. I mean, I had a great relationship with them, still do. My son actually works for that team now. I was going to ask, man. I, I thought your son is in broadcasting too, right? Yeah, he, my oldest son is. Yeah, he does uh, UNLV baseball, basketball. He works with the uh, AAA Aviators. Due to COVID protocols now, he can't do any games right now, so they have him doing production. They are only Major League Baseball is only allowing the minor leagues to have one announcer per game at this point, but they still have him there every night. 
and he's doing a lot of different things in production and broadcasting. So, but he'll get his chance and at the triple A level, he's worked at double A, he's worked at single A. I think his patience will pay off uh, once this, uh, the COVID restrictions are lifted. How old is he? Just turned 27 uh, a couple of, a few days ago. Yeah. And what about your dad? Is he still alive? Uh, he is not. I lost both my parents a few years ago. And there's actually a story in the book about what happened the day after I lost my dad suddenly. Uh, Mookie Betts is involved. And Alex Cora, former Dodger and now current manager of the Red Sox, uh, you know, they were both involved in two separate stories that helped me get through the sudden loss of my father. Um, you know, Mookie did something that was, you know, for him a really small gesture. But to me and my family was was pretty huge. You know, Mookie's probably forgotten all about it, but <laughs> but I wrote that story in the book and something Alex Cora did as well because Alex lost his dad when he was 13. And I remember the next day at the ballpark, he uh, pulled me in his office, closed the door, gave me a big hug, and we talked for a long time. And uh, he did something else that uh, that was pretty important to my family. So, you know, baseball people are, are good people. And, and there's, you know, stories like that that are in the book that, I think people might find interesting that I've never told before. Talk about the Red Sox journey that you had. You left after they won the World Series in 2018, right? Yes. So I know working for a flagship is probably different than working for the team. What was the reason why you left? Or was your contract up? Or did you have a deal with the Dodgers? Well, you, uh, you're you getting very warm. <laughs> when you mentioned working for the flagship, yeah, I, I could bore you for hours with the details, but it's just going to sound like sour grapes. But I did get a contract extension offer. It wasn't very long. And working for the flagship was not what they uh, told me it was going to be. The Red Sox did everything they could to, to keep me. They asked me to stay. And the opportunity with the Dodgers that presented itself during the season that we just didn't say anything about until the season was over. Uh, but the opportunity that presented itself was more like I had in Pittsburgh, going back and forth between TV and radio and working for the team, which uh, for anybody in baseball uh, to be employed by the team, that's the absolute best way to go, human resources wise and, you know, personally. And, and it was and it's the Dodgers. I mean, come on, it's the Dodgers. It's the greatest organization in baseball. Are you kidding me? I mean, what was I going to do? Say no. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was a it was a much better better employment situation for myself and my family, even though I grew up in Red Sox country. If I had worked for the Red Sox as a team, who knows, maybe I'd still be there. But, you know, I mean, the, the Red Sox, uh, uh, one of the owners, Tom Warner, flew to L.A. to personally present me with my World Series ring that next April at Dodger Stadium. We're in the Lexus Club at Dodger Stadium, and he, he gave me my World Series ring, and we, we talked for an hour. The CEO of, the of uh, you know, Fenway uh, sports management uh, and, and the CEO of the Red Sox, Sam Kennedy, called me just before my first spring training with the Dodgers. He called me out of the blue and he wished me the best of luck and he wanted to reinforce to me that I was part of the greatest team in Red Sox history and that'll never change. And, you know, he said, I hope we were working together sometime down the line. And, you know, he was really nice, but he called me out of the blue. So, I mean, I, I had the respect of the Red Sox organization. It was just the flagship people that were uh, different. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> that's not in the book, right? That's not. That's not. I, that's. I, I don't. I don't. It would sound like sour grapes, but if people knew knew all the stories, they'd be they would be amazed and ashamed of them. That's too bad. So uh, the book 
is coming out. Uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, but it will be available August 31st. Maybe it's too soon to ask you this question, but would it be something you'd do again? Write another book? Uh, I'll let you know once it's out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting process, and it seems like there's more work after you write it than when you write it. But I did enjoy the process. I enjoyed learning about the process of publishing and, and going through all of that. But it is an interesting deal when you go through the editing process, too, and you have an editor say, no, we're going to take out this paragraph because it's crap. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, well, mm-hmm. I thought that was good. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, nobody cares. You know, they're blunt with you. You know, they're like, nobody cares about that. Let's get rid of that. I'm like, mm. okay. So, but, but it's funny. I, I, I might do it again. I, you know, I, I, I mentioned to my wife not long ago that I might want to write a textbook on, on broadcast uh, uh, radio and television because I, am a, uh, I also am a professor at Emerson College and I teach each semester. And I thought about maybe doing some sort of a textbook for one of my classes. But, you know, maybe sometime down the line, I would do Tales from the Booth, you know, just talk to great broadcasters and, uh, you know, talk about stories that they have that are off the beaten path. I mean, I've got a bunch of my own. I mean, I had a broadcaster partner of mine <laughs> literally fall out of his chair making the call of a catch that that won a, a division series. And, and, and he had to look at me. To see if the guy caught it, I gave him a thumbs up because he was on the floor. This is this is Joe Castiglione in Boston. We're in Houston. He's literally on the carpet with the cable from his headset wrapped around his head. One earphone is on, one is off. I give him a thumbs up, and he goes, "He caught it. It's over." Like, oh my god! Any drinking that day in the booth or no? No, no, no drinking. Just water, but because uh, that that doesn't happen in this day and age anymore either. Uh, no, used to, but unfortunately. Yeah. But they, but you know, there's all kinds of stories like that that people don't know that I'd I'd like to gather and share maybe in the future that I think people would get a kick out of. But uh, for right now, you know, COVID curveball is um, it, you know, it's it's a play on words. The title COVID, you know, trying to flatten the curve, and then of course curveball, the natural baseball term, but. The alliteration of it, I think, kind of stands out. But it's my inside view of the 2020 season, start to finish, uh, from spring training, taking people inside and kind of pulling back the layers as, as much as I could without having access to the players. It's, it's available on Amazon right now for pre-order. Well, Tim, you bring the good energy, man. Your your previous job was uh, with the Red Sox. Uh, they won the title in 2018. Dodgers hire you. They win the title in 2020. You got to feel like the good luck charm somewhere. I mean, even the, the Pirates had some decent years when you were there. Even the Rockies, you took them to the World Series back in the day. They couldn't finish it off. I mean, there's only so much you can do, right? Yeah, I mean, 2007 with Colorado was interesting. And then I remember in 2008, as I did more studio work for them, 2008, they were brutal. <laughs> it was tough. But, they, but 2007 was crazy with Colorado and Again, in Pittsburgh, we won there in 13, 14, and 15. 15 was the best team they've had since uh, like 1991, 92. Uh, and those memories were great. And uh, so we won there, went to the Red Sox. They were in last place before I got there. When I got there, we won three straight divisions in a World Series. We won two straight divisions in a World Series with the Dodgers. So over the last five years, uh, plus three. So the last eight years, I've been with teams that have been in the postseason. Five of them have won the division, and two of them have won the World Series. Mm. Don't go anywhere, man. Just just stay put. Stay where you are. Uh, you're working for the team, so everything's okay. And uh, yep, this is where I want to be. I want I want to be here and, and grow here and, 
and stay here. And I love it here. I love the people I work with. And, you know, my partners, Rick Monday, Oral Hershiser, and Omar Garcia-Para, uh, you know, Ned Coletti when I'm in the studio. And sometimes I'll anchor. I'll actually anchor this Sunday, uh, Sportsnet LA. They're going to have me in studio a handful of times this year uh, on certain days. I mean, you know, Jerry Harrison, the people I get to work with and around are wonderful. And they're wonderful resources for me. They're, they're wonderful to deal with. And uh, I love I love them telling stories, and I love telling stories with them. It seems like a really, really good crew of guys. It really does. I enjoy listening to your work. Uh, you make things look easy, and that, to me, talking about a profession is the ultimate compliment. So um, I really enjoy listening to you. So, so keep doing what you're doing, Tim. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I, you know, I appreciate the Dodger fans very much. I mean, this is a great, passionate fan base that I, I love them. Trying to embrace L.A. I mean, I, I moved into downtown, believe it or not. And so I'm getting used to downtown from, you know, L.A. and learning all the landmarks. And uh, my time off, I, I try to go to Santa Monica or I'll go to the, go to Griffith Park or I'll go to wherever. You know, I'll go hiking in Malibu. Southern California is amazing. And, you know, I love living out west and I love it in L.A. And I'm just hoping that, that I can be here for until I don't want to do this anymore, which will be a long time from now. Yeah, there's nowhere else in the world you can snow ski and surf in the same day. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I might try it one you of these gotta days. you got to do that, I'm too. Considering it. Knock that one out, too, <laughs> off the list. Hey, man, I look forward to maybe meeting you at the stadium one of these days. Sounds great. I look forward to it. All right, Tim. I'm, I'm going to buy the book. I can't wait to read it. And uh, keep in touch, man. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What a nice, cool cat. Tim Neverd is such a nice dude. I could have, uh, we could have probably talked for six hours. No, no BS. Um, it's just fun to talk to baseball minds and people. I just, I love it. I love it. I can do it all day long. And uh, Tim Neverd is definitely one of those guys. Fun conversation. I'm looking forward to reading his book. And I hope he's around for a long time. It's just so cool that guys like Tim give me this opportunity to have this conversation, to sit down with them or talk to them. It's just it's super cool, man. I'm, I am forever grateful for, for these opportunities, these conversations, especially guys in, in this industry. So uh, super cool. Remember, follow me on social media, Mike'd Up Pod. We'll have all the links in the show notes. And tell a friend or two, will you please? Or three or four. That was episode 58. Looking forward to 59. I hope you are too. Thank you so much for making me a part of your day. I am Mike Gabriel. Until next time, folks, no wasted days. Let's go. Let's go.